Well, good morning, and again, glad to see you. Welcome to worship at Downtown Presbyterian, and if you and I have not met, my name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here. That was Adam Radcliffe, who's not yet one of our pastors, but is on track to be. Uh, we have just brought him on as a full-time pastoral intern. He is working toward being ordained in our presbytery, where he will serve as one of our pastors. We're very thankful for that, but I want you to know who who the people are up here up front. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts, and so we're going to be looking really at the end of chapter 4, first part of chapter 5. I'm including a little snippet from chapter 2, but all that's in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. So we'll start Acts 2.44, but we'll really dig in at Acts 4.32. Let me pose a question to you before I read this passage, and one of the real treats I get here at at downtown Presbyterian is that I sometimes get to teach the women's Bible study, the midweek Wednesday morning women's Bible study. Don't always teach it, but sometimes during the fall. Really love that time. That's just a wonderful group. Would love for any of you to come if you've never been. Uh, If you're a woman, that is, you may come. But uh, I remember one time I posed this question and I got the funniest response just watching the faces of the people in the room. So I'm going to pose the same question to you. And when I pose this question, I'm not looking for an audible response or a show of hands. I'm just posing the question. Okay, here it is. Have you ever invited someone over when you knew they couldn't come? Have you ever done that? I can tell that some of you are very naughty from your faces. Very naughty indeed. Or maybe you ask somebody, hey, can we get together? Yeah, hey, can you get together tomorrow for coffee? When, like when somehow you knew their schedule, you knew they couldn't do it. Because what's, uh, what's delicious about it is that you, it's like you get credit for being kind and hospitable without having to exert any energy or giving really at all. And um, I think that you know, I'm kind of laughing about something that is, that, that is, is not good. And the reason I bring that up is because, a, a, let's say, a more concentrated demonstration of that same impulse shows up in this passage. And it's, it's very instructive because it's, you're going to see a couple, a married couple, do something. And it doesn't seem like that big a deal. It, it seems like maybe we'd say, well, no, that was not ideal for them to do that. And there's a severe consequence. And you have to remember where we are in the Bible. Uh, We're in Acts. This is, you know, after the four Gospels. It's really the account of how knowing Jesus, following Jesus, worshiping Jesus, proclaiming Jesus went from this very local thing in Judea to a worldwide phenomenon and as it has grown since then. But this is the early church. And we're not talking the 200s, 300s AD. I mean, we're talking just the first few years and decades of the New Testament church. There's something there early on that's very precious. It's something that God wants for us. And what you're going to see is that God is very protective of it. Uh, He was protective of it with them. And this should be very instructive for us as a community of God's people. So let's look at this. Again, a couple of verses from Acts 2 and then chapter 4, verse 32. 2.44. And this is describing the church in its earliest days, right after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit is poured out. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings 
and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, these are heavy words. All your words are weighty because of who you are. There's no book like this book, and there's no words like your words, but we pray that this morning we won't just hear uh, judgment, consequence. We would hear, even in the midst of this, hear very good news, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may or may not have seen this book or heard about this book. It came out a few years ago. It's called Coming Apart by Charles Murray. Uh, Charles Murray is a scholar, went to Harvard, doctorate from MIT, very bright, works for the American Enterprise Institute. And actually, the, the full title is Coming Apart, the subtitle is The State of White America, 1960 to 2010. And I'm not saying this to be funny or facetious or anything like that. I've never, I've never really read a book about movements in white culture. I've read books about culture and sociological movements, but I've never read a book about specifically white culture over the last 50 years. One of the things that Charles Murray does in this book is he uses two towns in the Northeast as sort of a case study of trajectories of different income levels in the United States. 
one town that he looks at is Belmont, Massachusetts. That's a suburb of Boston, very affluent, very well-educated, high concentration of people not only with college degrees, but graduate degrees, doctorates, all that, and affluent. The other town is Fishtown, Pennsylvania. It's outside of Philadelphia, PA. Uh, Much lower income, a lot more uh, blue-collar laborers. I think in the year 2000, only 8% of the adults had graduated from college, so very different kind of town. And I was looking at the chapter that Murray writes about community, how community happens. Everybody talks about community, but it's hard to define. You sort of know it when you see it. As he writes about this and he crunches a lot of data, I just want to read you a few, a few sentences. And he mentions Fishtown. That's the, the lesser income, lesser educated town. He says, The raw material that makes community even possible has diminished so much in Fishtown th- that the situation may be beyond retrieval. So community is... The experience of it is disappearing in Fishtown because there's this raw material that even makes it possible. It's disappearing. What's the raw material? All right, next sentence. That raw material is social trust. Not trust in a particular neighbor who happens to be your friend, but a generalized expectation that the people around you will do the right thing. Then he says this. When social trust breaks down... Social capital breaks down across the board. Now, when he uses the term social capital, that's, he's probably borrowing from a guy named Robert Putnam, but that's that's a term for this thing that you can have where even if you don't have a lot of money, even if you don't have a lot of education, even if, you know, your relatives, their names are not on buildings on the university campus or city hall or anything like that, If you've got social capital, if you've got real connections with other people and there's a social fabric that takes care of each other, you'll you'll probably be okay. And the higher your social capital is, the more likely it is that you'll be okay. I know a friend of of, uh, our family's was a pastor in a little Mississippi Delta town, not affluent, a, a town without a lot of money and they weren't paid a lot of money. But I've heard his children say, when we were growing up, we lacked for nothing. People just brought us food. People brought us stuff. People always kept an eye on us. We didn't have a ton of money. We lacked for nothing. We had high social capital. But as a scholar, Murray says this, what social capital, what community is made of is the ability to trust the people around you that they're going to do the right thing. And even says this, not just like the guy that I've lived next to for 20 years and we borrow each other's wheelbarrow and I've known him for 20 years, but even people I don't know just because you're part of this fabric and I trust you to do the right thing. The place where that should be richest, uh, boldest, most empowered, make the most sense, from a biblical vantage point, would be the church. But I want you to think about how you actually feel. Like, how do you actually feel about the local church? Now, I, I know that not everybody here is a member of this church, and not everybody here in the room right now is churched or in the church right now. Maybe you're just here with someone or just kind of kicking the tires. But many of you are in the church. If you had a real struggle, would you talk to someone in the church? Like if if something really embarrassing and that you're ashamed of, 
that's hard to talk about. If it happened to you, if you could even bring yourself to, to verbalize it, to broach it, would you want to talk with the people in the church? If not, that's a breakdown of the very thing he's describing. And the reason I'm, I'm belaboring this is that I don't want you to hear this passage as almost like this mythic account of a golden era where people just magically knew the right thing to do. These are messed up, fallen, real people. But God burst into their lives. And he did something by his grace where the level of connection between them, even where there wasn't already a friendship, where there wasn't a prior relationship, was amazing. And again, I'll say this again. It's just kind of become really... Uh, it's just become very trendy to talk about community and to throw that term around. Community is amazing and community is hard. This is a description of a real community. So let's, let's look at it. Let, let's, think in ter- let's use the template of community. Here's how I want to unpack this. Community is visible. Like it's not an abstraction. It actually does real things that you can observe. Community is visible. Community is vulnerable. And community is powerful. Community is visible. Community is vulnerable. Community is powerful. Look at this description, chapter 4, verse 32. Luke says, Now the full number of those who believed, and at this point he's not just talking about a group of hundreds, he's talking about a group of thousands in the Jerusalem area. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And just as, as I was reading commentaries about this, people that, real, you know, scholars that know this stuff said, they don't know of any other Greek historic document, Luke wrote in Greek, that says this. Like there are descriptions of what people would love to see, kind of utopias that they wished would come true, but they don't know of any other account where somebody actually says, this really was happening, where a diverse, multi-ethnic group of people were of one heart. And one soul. And they live that way. All right, so how, how did it express itself? How is it, how is it visible? First off, teaching. Now, I know that you can't see teaching, but you see teachers. And you see people receiving teaching and responding to teaching. Look in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Now, let me say this or I'm going to pop. Something that I, I don't ever want to do is stand in front of you and give you a Jesusless sermon. And what would be really easy to do is just launch into this passage and go, wow, look at what a tight-knit community. Look how they shared with each other. We don't share with each other like this. What's our deal? Let's do better and let's close in prayer. The problem with that is why did messed up people have this level of community? And I think you've got to start there. Community is around something, Right? That's the unity part of the community. What are they unified around? Different ethnicities, different economic levels. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Like when Luke talks about the resurrection, that shorthand for God becoming man and living and dying and rising physically, bodily, not mythical, rising from the dead and ascending to heaven. On our behalf. The basis for this unity is all these different kinds of people have been 
given the ability to believe that and trust it and say, you know what? If that happened, everything changes. If that happens, everything's different. The community of people who say that are around that teaching. You got to have that. Second, leadership. Um, this, you know, this had never jumped out at me before, but look at this phrase that keeps, that keeps recurring. It says that somebody would sell a piece of property, sell land. They would take the, the, the silver, the money, whatever, verse 35, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 37, this guy named Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money in, laid it at the apostles' feet. And then down in chapter 5, even Ananias sells this property, laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, that's interesting. Um, This doesn't answer all the questions about how did the early church operate, like exactly what were the leadership structures like, what did the apostles do, what offices were in place. It doesn't answer all the flowchart questions of how the early church worked. It does model a principle. The principle is this. Part of community was that there was leadership And people didn't take their money and say, okay, I want that designated for that, and that designated for that, and this earmarked for that. They entrusted it to the leadership and said, you're accountable to God. This is the Lord's money. You do the right thing. And they left it with the leadership, which very much nudges on us who want to personalize and direct and control everything. They laid it at the apostles' feet. So you got teaching. You've got leadership. But this is kind of the biggie is just sharing, like real, true, expensive sharing. Go back up to chapter 2 and verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Chapter 4, verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, just right off the bat, I think we're kind of impressed by that and we get nervous about that because it sounds like, uh, are we supposed to be communists? <laughs> and it was, now, some of us are laughing, but people have used these passages uh, essentially as proof text that that would be the Christian economic model. But there's this qualifier that Luke uses. He does it in chapter 2. He does it in chapter 4. They're both in the bulletin. He said that Money would be, well, first, it would be secured by selling something, and then it would be applied when? As any had need. So what is that saying? It's not saying, hey, look, this Christian has, I'm going to use dollars because that's that's our currency. Luke is not saying, this Christian has $80,000, and this uh, poor Christian has $20,000. So y'all put that in one big pot and then we're going to split it where you both have $50,000. That's not what it says. What it says is if the $20,000 Christian really got in a bind, the equivalent of the medical bill, the car falling apart, whatever, that the $80,000 Christian didn't view his or her 80000 as just his or hers to protect. But they said, you know what? God provided that so that I can be ready to help you. There's a hole here, and I'm ready to plug it. And they would plug it. Or they would sell something to plug it. Maybe even if there wasn't a prior relationship, they just, the impulse to do that was there. And just so we're clear, that I'm not a communist. That would be weird if you went home and somebody said, what was church about? The pastor is a communist. (laughs) 
Um, just so we're clear, later in chapter 12, later in Acts, there's a prayer meeting and it takes place at the home of John Mark, like that wrote the Gospel of Mark. In other words, he had never sold his house. You see the evidence of private property that still existed. Anything we're talking about was voluntary from the heart. Now, you know, we kind of, uh, we kind of rush to go, okay, whew, good. Whew, I don't have to liquidate all my stuff. Let me read you a passage from another New Testament book. This is 1 John. It says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. And that's really important. He doesn't say just your neighbor in general, just somebody out there in society. Your brother, if you're a Christian and you see another Christian. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, that has the aroma of real life about it. Let's not love with talky-talky, but let's love with our things and our deeds and in truth. The community was doing that. It was, it was visible, all right? Now, here's, here's the other thing. Community is vulnerable. Okay, we got to talk about this thing about Ananias and Sapphira where... You know, you just heard Barnabas sold a piece of property. He brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. Son of encouragement. Yay! Ananias and Sapphira, they liquidate property. They put it at the apostles' feet, and they end up dying. So what was the real offense? What was the thing that happened? Okay, look at, look at verses 3 and 4 first from chapter 5. And then verse 8, because you need both of these to sort of get the full picture. Three and four, this is Peter talking to the husband. He says this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And get this next part. Here's the voluntary part. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You had freedom to do... You, you're, no one bound your hands about this. But at some level, you've lied. Now... Verse 8, to his wife, Sapphira, Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? If you didn't have both of those, it would be hard to tell exactly what happened. And maybe we can't tell exactly what happened. But here's what seems to have happened. They seem to have pledged to the church we will sell this property and we will, give, we will give whatever we get from this sale to the community, to the church. And it's very possible that maybe they got more money than they thought they would. Maybe they got more than market value. And they thought, you know, we could actually hang on to some of this and give a mighty big pile to the church. And somehow under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Peter knows this. And he says, you know, You've lied, not just to man, you've lied to God. And the consequence is severe and immediate. And Luke doesn't apologize for it. The apostles don't apologize for it. Luke doesn't try to tidy up. He just puts it before you and says, this is what happened. 
Luke's the, I talk to the eyewitnesses and tell you what happened, guy. Um, when I was working in a summer camp right after college, I remember this particular summer in one of the four-week terms, there was a camper. He was one of the oldest campers, the chiefs. And he had had a troubled year. He had been a camper at this camp. A lot of the staff knew him. The director knew him well. He had had a rough year. And it was sort of a gamble about bringing him in because his behavior at home and at school had been really bad. But the director wanted him to have a summer there and was really praying that this would be a great four weeks for him and maybe be a, a rounding the corner for him. So he came in, and the director just was so excited. The, the staff had prayed. We prayed for campers all the time, but we had prayed for this guy by name in particular. Maybe about halfway through the term, uh, one Sunday afternoon, he wandered off with a couple of buddies. He walked to a state park that bordered this boys' camp, and they wandered off somewhere they weren't supposed to, and they smoked, and they got caught. In the grand scheme of things, not a huge deal. But at this camp, it is an inflexible rule. If you do that, you're on the bus that day. And uh, so the, the kind of the ripple effects of this went through the camp immediately. It was sort of like there were so many people rooting for this guy. And so they heard about this very quickly. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time that night when a bus came up the mountain to pick him up. And it's almost like a movie moment. I saw, and no one was really around, I saw the camp director, just kind of this patriarch director of this camp, hugging this boy, one of those hugs where like no one moves and you just stand there, hugging him goodbye and putting him on the bus, not being mean, not being a bully, but the standard is the standard. And believe me, the next morning, the other boys in that cabin, the cabins around them, everyone was clear The standard is the standard. When we hear, man, this couple, they didn't murder somebody. They they didn't run a brothel. They fudged on what they got for a piece of property and they dropped dead. How do we explain that? I don't know that we can fully explain it. But there is a pattern that you see in God's Word is that at very key moments in redemptive history, sometimes God will sh- he'll use somebody as a display to say, here's what I really feel about this. And it's His mercy that He doesn't do that all the time. But sometimes at key moments He'll say, here's, here's a severe consequence so that you know how dangerous th- th- this is. And here's the thing. It's God who understands If you start behaving in such a way that you're just mildly deceiving each other and mildly deceiving leadership, it's going to seem like not a big deal to you, and what it will do is destroy your community. It's exactly what Charles Murray is talking about. It will will torpedo the bonds of trust that have to be keeping you connected. If those bonds aren't there, you're not connected. As a local church, what, what do you feel here? Because really you could say that the real, the sinister thing that Ananias and Sapphira did was not so much the lying, but it was what? It was hypocrisy. And again, we think, gosh, should you drop dead for hypocrisy? Well, what, 
what destroys people's experiences with local churches? When people get burned by churches, what do they normally talk to you about? Or for some of you, if you've been burned by a local church, first, thank you for being here. But if you've been burned, what burns you? And I bet nine times out of ten, the word hypocrisy would be used. When God became a man and walked in our midst, there was plenty of sin to talk about. And Jesus talked about all kinds of sin. But there was one that he harped on and named it and called it out. And he did it over and over and over. And he used his harshest words with the people who trafficked in this. What's the word? Hypocrisy. There's an authenticity and an honesty and a realness that if if that's not who we are, and if that's not what we traffic in, we can use the word community all day long, and it'll be fake. But if we have it, it's real. Community is vulnerable. But I, I want to end on this note. Community is powerful. And I, I, I love ending on this note after this stark thing. Uh, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5, it says that, and the husband has just died. It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And it says, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. No kidding. And then it uses the same term down in verse 11. It says, and great fear, after Sapphira died too, came upon the whole church. And everybody who heard about these things. And you know what? Irony of ironies. That's the first time that Luke uses the word church. In the book of Acts. And you can almost just. You can almost feel the the reader going. Okay great. This is the church. So you look at that and you think. Oh my goodness. Well like. Well it was growing. Till now. And this is not in the bulletin. But can I read you what it says. Three verses later. This is Acts chapter 5 verse 14. People dropping dead. Start consequences. Boy, church is going to plummet now, right? Acts 5, 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. The growth went up at this point. Let, let me be as just stark as possible. I would say that what comes naturally to us when we think about how will we reach our city? How will I reach the people around me if I'm a Christian? Our default mode is to think, I will outcool them. I will outwork them. I will uh, outearn them. I will outpretty them. And they'll go, wow, you're so pretty. Wow, you're so cool. Wow, you work so hard. And then we're going to go, hey, and you know what? I'm a Christian. Let's talk. When what did Jesus say? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by what? Your love for people in general. We should love people in general. That's not what he said. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. I mean, I'll just tell you, I don't know how the math works on this, but it seems to be the case that according to Jesus, the great thing that has power to impact the city around us, to impact the people who are watching us, 
is not so much. Look how cool I am. Look how, look how sharp I am. And I'm a Christian. It's maybe if our church sends out an email and says, you know what? This member of our church, their, dish, their, um, their clothes washer just broke. Does anybody, does anybody have a washer? And you do. And you don't know this person. And you give it to them. Or you buy them one if you have the means to do that. You think, I, I don't see how that's going to impact anybody. According to Jesus, that's how all men will know that you are my disciples. When you do something supernaturally different than just be the nice guy or the nice girl. I want to tell you a quick story that, that I just found out about recently that demonstrated this, and then I'll be done. Um, a friend of mine is a pastor somewhere else, and uh, somewhere north of here. Let's put it that way. There's a guy in his church who they hired recently as the, as the, I guess what an Episcopal church would call the sextant, kind of the, the facilities guy of the church. Came out of a prison background. Before he went into prison, had a lot of tattoos. And then when he was in prison, got tattoos, I guess done by each other. And they were just, the, it's not just that he had tattoos all over him, but they were incredibly vulgar. And my friend didn't use any examples, but he said just the words on his fingers were just terrible. And a lot of his tattoos were white supremacist tattoos. But he became a Christian in prison, uh, did his time, came out, was hired by this church, became a member of this church. And um, anytime you see him working, even though it was really hot, he's always wearing long sleeves because he didn't want people to see the stuff all over him. And so the church, organically, just people on their own decided... Let's, let's raise money to have him get these things removed. He wanted to get them removed, but it's expensive and it's painful. So they just pulled their money and said, We're just, let's do this. And the pastor said, they pulled so much money that he finally had to say, it's paid for. You don't have to, we don't have to raise any more money for his tattoos. But because it was physically painful to get these worked on, these members not only gave their money, they would drive him to the doctor and back so that he didn't have to drive when he was in pain. So that he could, and it's just going to take multiple procedures. And after a while, the doctor doing this in another city said, uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not charging you anymore. I don't know why these people are doing this for you, but I think it's great. I don't know what that man believes spiritually. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. All I, all I know is this thing happened organically when a group of people said, uh, yeah, he's one of ours, and we've got this, and we're going to act accordingly. And this doctor in another city said, what is the deal? That can only happen when you've got all kinds of different people who believe that God became a man and lived and died and rose from the dead and that that changes everything. If it changes everything, you know what? We can actually trust one another with our things and with our words and with our deeds. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we cannot manufacture this kind of community. We cannot manufacture relationships. We pray by the work of the same Holy Spirit, you the Holy Spirit, that gathered around the resurrection of the same Jesus Christ that you would form real community in our church, in the churches of Greenville, that it would be something that caused all those who look on it to know that we are your disciples. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.